It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime with your feedback or questions at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. Dig deeper after this episode by downloading our comprehensive CQ Rewind show notes. It's a visual and contextual map for everything we cover. That's on our website and in our weekly newsletter. Plus, check out our YouTube channel. We're putting out cool content for all age groups with new videos every week, all available at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what is the subject on the table for today? Well, Rick, our question is, Contradictions Part 4, Why So Many Contradictions Surrounding Jesus' Resurrection? And our theme text is found in Luke chapter 24, verse 6. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? Folks, the question again. Contradictions are contradictions series. This is part four. We're running through a mini-series right now. This is the second consecutive week. We're doing four weeks on these contradictions. Why so many contradictions surrounding Jesus' resurrection? Ask any Christian, and they will tell you that one of the greatest, if not the greatest event in all of biblical history, is the resurrection of Jesus after his crucifixion. We laud this event as the undeniable guarantee that God's plan for the world's salvation is entirely unstoppable. This event not only sealed the ransom payment as received, it also sealed the fate of Satan as well. So, with so much writing on this event, you would think that the narrative given us in Scripture would be the most crystal clear account in the entire Bible. Well, that is not the case. The event is recorded by all four Gospels, and each of them seem to contradict the others. Why? Coming up in today's podcast, what do you do when one biblical account says one thing and the others seem to say exactly the opposite? Our second segment begins with exactly such a problem, so join us for that solution. How do we handle the overwhelming criticism of those who don't want to believe in Scripture when it's about a lot of small things? Do the small things not matter? Find out in segment three. And finally, people's emotions and reactions play enormous roles in how any life experience plays out. What does it take to see these things unfold in accounts from biblical times? Our fourth and fifth segments unlock a flood of emotion and show us what happened as a result. Rick, those who seek to destroy the Bible's credibility are quick to say that these discrepancies are proof of the Bible's fallibility. Are they? Let's take them one at a time and find out. All right. So to do that, with this particular event, talking about the 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 events surrounding the resurrection of, of Jesus, we brought in a very, very good friend of ours and CQ contributor, Tom Rigorello. Good day, Tom. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing well. It's really good to have you back with us. You've been with us several times before. 
I'm very glad to be with you, and I just want to commend you for the work that you do of preaching the gospel. It's wonderful, and many have uh, benefited from it. Thank you for all you guys do. Well, I'll tell you, Jonathan and I will tell you, it's like the greatest blessing we could ever have. So we're in, baby. It's a privilege. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So, Tom, actually, before we get started, just a little bit of background about about who you are, uh, just for those who are not familiar familiar with you, and then we'll dive right into our question. Okay, I'm an elder with the Chicago Bible Students. I've been for about 35 years, and so we... uh, give sermons, lead Bible studies, and uh, teach the scriptures. We love the gospel just like you do, and that's our life is devoted to it. So that's why I'm with you. I happen to give a sermon that touched on some of these subjects, and that's why uh, it seems like it's going to be a good fit, I hope. <laughs> well, it better be because, you know, we're, we got you here, pal, so no we're, pressure. We're counting on you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so let, let's put this all in order. Let's get started. So just kind of as an introductory question for you, Tom, before we get into the matter of the resurrection per se, how should we approach Bible study in your mind when it comes to questions like these of contradictions? Predictions and things like that. Well, that's a good good place to start. I think first of all we have to understand that it's okay to raise questions. That if we're searching for the truth, questions is a good way to arrive at it. But if our questions are only meant to find fault and to undermine and to destroy something, then not only are we going to be missing the truth that's there, we're going to be hurting other people. So we don't want to miss the beauty that's there with these little. I call them. Um, uh, pebbles of criticism, because I think there are answers for all the criticisms. I might mention at this point that Jesus spoke in parables. And when he told all these stories and people just weren't getting it, the disciples said, why do you speak in parables? <laughs> and his answer in Matthew 13 was interesting. He said, because I don't want them to believe. And that's amazing. Why wouldn't he want them to believe? And the answer was because he was searching for those who wanted to dig deeper and find the answers, who weren't just there for the loaves and the fishes, but they wanted to know the truth, and so they were willing to search. I think that's an important principle, even when we come to analyzing criticisms of the scriptures. Uh, That's all I'll say about that. I want to make a couple of points, too, about the accounts that we're going to look at. Uh, Sometimes... Some of the critics will look at one account and compare it to another. And I think we have to understand when one account does not give all the facts that another account gives, that doesn't mean they're in conflict. That just means that someone emphasized one fact over the other. And I think when you have multiple eyewitnesses, you're naturally going to have different perspectives. And so we should expect some slight variations. In fact, I think that the variations support their authenticity. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And I think we will see that as we start comparing the different accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Okay, all right. So that's some good basic principles to start with. So the actual four biblical accounts in question are Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, Luke 24, verses 1 through 12, and John 20, verses 1 through 18. We're going to spend almost our entire time in those four gospel accounts of the resurrection. And Jonathan, there is an overriding principle that we're going to be discussing here in this this podcast. What is it? Always seek the larger context beyond any single account. Remember, various perspectives enhance true understanding. And Tom, that's really what you said before. Various perspectives are going to give us a clearer understanding, not fog the mirror, but give us clarity, and that's really what we want. 
Yeah, I think the more eyewitnesses to an account that you have, the better picture you're going to get. And so rather than seeing these as conflicts, let's seeing, see them as complementary eyewitness accounts. And let's put the accounts together. And by doing that, we will get the bigger picture. Okay. So, folks, here's the way it's going to work. We have got 10 questions that we're going to get through. And if you know Jonathan and I, you think 10 questions, never do it. Well, we're going to really try and be concise. So, Jonathan, give us the first question and the reasons the question exists. Okay, Rick and Tom, let's get started. Our first problem, number one, who were the first visitors to the tomb? Now, in Matthew 28, 1, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. In Mark 16, verse 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome were there. In Luke 24, 10, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, and the other women, so at least five total. And in John, Mary Magdalene alone. So Rick and Tom. Who's right? (laughs) Okay, Tom, you've got four different Gospels with four different answers about who was there. How do you put that all together? Well, the answer is they're they're all right. Uh, First of all, here's a very simple solution to the John account. The John account is not describing the same event as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so it doesn't have to be the same. It doesn't have to match. John is describing Mary Magdalene's second visit. And so automatically that resolves the problem on why John's account is different. Now, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke account, they describe the same women. It's just that they're not in the same detail. Uh, So we take the most detailed account, and that would be Luke. And so we have Mary Magdalene, which, by the way, is the first name mentioned in each of these accounts. To me, that says that she's the predominant one. She's the one leading the party, and so she's a significant person. And that's probably why Mary, uh, why Matthew includes her first with just the other Mary, just the two Marys. Whereas Luke, he was a physician. He was more detailed. He gives a more fuller account, but even he doesn't name them all. <laughs> he names three of them, and then he says, and other women. So we can assume from that there were at least two other women, but it may have been more. So you can see that this is not meant to be a detailed account. If it was, we would have had the names of all five or six or seven women who were there. So I think that's an easy resolution. Okay, so you're saying there's at least five by going by the Luke account, which names a, a the broad perspective. So, so the simple answer to this is, okay, who was there? Well, we can conclu- conclude there were at least five women who first came to the tomb. Right. Okay. Simple, straightforward. Now, let's just pause here for a second. And that was the easiest of the questions we're going to be dealing with, I think. We'll get a little bit more detailed as we go. But why the difference in each gospel as to who was recorded to have been there? Tom, any thoughts on why the difference in the four gospels? Well, it's interesting. You know, these are secondhand accounts, right? If we would have wanted firsthand accounts, the women would have wrote this. But the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John wrote, they were interviewing these women. And I imagine maybe Matthew interviewed one, Mark interviewed another, and Luke interviewed another. And so from the five women who were there, maybe they would have listed them differently. But realize there's a lot that we don't know that's not written that we have to kind of surmise. Uh, So I think that the women who were there, it wasn't important who was there. 
except for the Mary Magdalene, I think, is the most significant one. So it's not a detail that we have to get hung up on because it's not that important. The important point, of course, is the resurrection and that there were eyewitnesses to it. And, and, that, and that ends up boiling down to being the most important thing. And the other thing about the Gospels, Matthew was predominantly written specifically to prove the, that, the, that Jesus came and fulfilled the Old Testament. It was, he was a, a compiler who, who put the proof together. Uh, Mark was written from a sort of an action standpoint. He records a lot of what Jesus did, more so than the words of Jesus. Luke, like you said, the physician, he puts it in order, he puts it in sequence— and John gives us the sense of the people and the, the feeling and the experience. So you've got four different uh, approaches to the same event that give you four different flavors to the same event. And I think that adds a whole lot to it. Okay, so first question, pretty simple. Jonathan, what about the next question? All right, question two. What time did they come to the tomb? Now, again, this is a timing question. So in Matthew 28, 1, it says, as it became, began to dawn. And in Mark 16, 2, very early in the morning at the rising of the sun. And in Luke 24, 1, very early in the morning. And in John 20, verse 1, when it was yet dark. So let's get right to the point. What's the answer? <laughs> Is it light? Is it dark? Tom, you've got three Gospels that seem to be very, very close, and John seems to be just saying it's even earlier. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I I go back to the point I made earlier. There are probably five women who are describing the morning, and they all use different words. I don't think that's a big problem. If you look at the John account, it seems to be the the issue while it was still dark. Uh, But notice it said it was early. They came early to the tomb. So it wasn't midnight. It wasn't two in the morning. It was early in the morning. And if you look at that word dark, uh, strong, in Strong's uh, Greek dictionary, it says it could be translated dimness or obscurity. I mean, to me, that's a perfect word to describe when the sun is just coming up. I don't get up that early very often. So, <laughs> But when I do, there's a dimness to it. The sun hasn't come up yet. So I don't see a real problem here. Well, and how many times have you, if you're up at that hour, and I used to get up really, really early to do the uh, radio when it was mm-hmm. Christian Questions on the radio and drive out to Jonathan's area, and I used to leave my house at 3.40 in the morning, and oh. uh, that was before the sun, and you know there were points where it's still dark, but you can see. Yeah, let me say this too. If they were trying to be precise, they would tell you what time it was in yeah. the morning. yeah. The fact that they're just giving a general description is showing that they're not trying to be precise. They just want you to know that this was at the dawn. And, you know, and folks, look, for those of you who are critics who say, see, the Bible isn't being precise. No, it's not. It's not trying to be. It's painting a picture. And what you get from this is there were at least five women there, and it was really, really at the very crack of dawn, early, early, early in the morning. So that gives you the picture. That's what these are for. So if you say, well, the, the, the Gospels don't agree exactly, okay, and what's your point? The point is we're painting a picture of a dramatic event. Let the picture be painted. And again, the other perspectives end up being very, very important here. Uh, Rick, if I could just add one thing. Let's not miss the point of uh, who is doing this and when. 
this is the day after the Sabbath. They couldn't do this on the Sabbath. So they come Sunday morning. They come first thing morning. It shows you the depth of how much they cared for our Lord, that they were willing to continue to serve him even while he's laying in the tomb. At least they thought he was laying there. And the fact that it was the day after the Sabbath, they were not to work. So they were going to set about their work at the earliest possible dawning, which shows you their faithfulness to him. Yeah, if you get hung up on the you know, the word, you know, at, at the dark, you're going to miss that beautiful point that there was dedication here. These women were devoted to him with their lives. Okay, good. So um, it's pretty simple. F- at least five women, and it's early, early, early in the morning. Lots of little details, and already we can see how easy it is to confuse things. We need to pay attention. We know who was at the tomb and when. So the next question is, what and whom did they see? We're excited to be hearing from our growing listening audience at ChristianQuestions.com through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also chat with us now during the live broadcast. You know what would be really awesome? If you can leave us a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It helps us reach even more people. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing. Now, let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. It is in this part of the account that a few glaring potential challenges arise. We've already talked about the expected differences in eyewitness accounts, but these next few texts seem to take that to another level. So how do we honestly reconcile scriptures that we will see seem so contrary to one another? And I want to put the emphasis on seem Contrary, and before we get to the next question, uh, Trish, my wife, and our and our sort of our program observer, she came in and dropped off a question, and she does that when she figures out, okay, let's be be clear. She says, "How does it trying to how 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 does it uh, it's not trying to be precise and being divinely inspired work together?" And I think that's a good question. And the answer to that, just very very simply, is you're painting a picture of an event. We're not worried about the exact moment of the day. What we're, what we're looking at is these women who were faithful wanted to honor the body of Jesus. Let's focus on this is what was happening here. And what they met with was entirely different than what they expected. So, Tom, did you want yeah, to add to that? Yeah, when, when precise is necessary, it's precise. When it's not important, it's not precise. It's as simple as that. Let's not focus on something that's not important. Let's get to the important stuff. Okay, good. So, important stuff. Jonathan, hey, we covered two questions already. Awesome. All right. All right. So now, Rick and Tom, here's our third question. Was the great stone sealing the tomb of Jesus rolled away before or after their arrival? Now, in Matthew, it tells us a different story than the other three writers. So let me read Matthew 28, 2 through 5. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And it was, in his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. Now, let's compare that to Mark, Luke, and John. Mark sixteen three through 4 The women were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? 
Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. In Luke 24.2, it reads, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And in John 20, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So, how do you explain the Matthew account compared with the other three? Okay, so Tom, in the Matthew account, you've got the, these 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 extra details. In the other three accounts, it's okay, they came, it's really, really early in the morning, and the stone is already rolled away. Matthew tells us how the stone was rolled away, and it says the... Um, and the and 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 the angel was there with the women saying hey don't be afraid so it seems to be very contradictory because it seems like it's saying well they were there and and they saw this angel do this work and it really scared the the, the daylights out of them and and what what do you say to that let's <laughs> let's say this don't read what's not there <laughs> okay let again let's put the accounts together and fill in the missing details if you read Matthew 28, 2 through 5 carefully, okay. it does not say that the women saw the stone rolled away. It doesn't say that. It says the guards saw it. They were terrified, and it says that they became like dead men. In my mind, that describes they passed out out of fear. They were paralyzed with fear. And later in the Matthew account, it tells us they revived, they went into Jerusalem, and they told the priests what was happening. That all takes time to happen. And I think what we have to do is realize that between verses 4 and 5, there was some time that passed. And so after these guards are dealt with, they're terrified, they leave, the stone is rolled away, then the women come and they see that the tomb has been opened. Now with that interpretation, it harmonizes with the other accounts without violating anything in Matthew. Just put five or ten minutes between verses four and five, and that resolves the problem. Okay. All right. You said that way too easily. <laughs> because, you know, the, 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 the critics make this a big, big deal. And they say, well, you know, this is all written in the present tense, and therefore it has to all be happening at the same time, and on and on and on. And so the point of some of the critics is, are that in verse 4, and again, I'm going to go over verses 4 and 5 of Matthew 28, because this is the crux of the matter. Uh, the guards shook for fear. I mean, and I mean, they were afraid to the point, like you said, that they probably passed out. Now, talk about fear, okay? That's enormous. And then the very next words in Matthew are, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. So what you're saying is, don't read into verse 4 that the women were watching that. Read that this happened, and then afterwards the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. Yeah, I would say that if we did not have Mark, Luke, or John, that we could interpret it that way. But because we have Mark and Luke and John to give us the extra detail that the stone was already rolled away, we can come back to Matthew and say, okay, I see where that happened. It happened between verses 4 and 5. And so I think Mark, Luke, and John help us understand how Matthew could be correct. Okay, so when we look at the Matthew account, folks, and, and again, for those of you who are looking, look, for those of you who want to be critics and want to find trouble, <clears throat> I'm sure you're going to say, well, that doesn't make sense. Fine. But for those of you who want to find the harmony of Scripture and find the truth of the matter, look at the different accounts and see the sense of just a few minutes between verse 4 
and verse 5. Just because verse 5 follows verse 4 doesn't mean it's the instant next thing. And that happens in the Gospels all the time. When you look at Jesus and his ministry, and you, you, you look at what he says, and suddenly it says, and, and then he was, and it's like, wait, this is days later. You figure it out. So what it's doing is it's just saying, here's the background, here's how the tombstone was rolled away, and now let's get into the matter of it actually being rolled away when they got there. So, Tom, to just make sure we got your answer very clearly on this, the question, was the great stone uh, sealing the tomb rolled away before or after the women's arrival? The stone had already been just rolled away by an angel who had also subdued the guards. That's correct. And I might say that that's why we have four accounts, to fill in these details that we might get wrong if we only had one account. Right. So it's multiple eyewitnesses giving us uh, a building block to put the whole picture together. Okay, so when you're looking at that account in Matthew, it's okay for a little time to go by. It really is. It, there's nothing literarily wrong with that. There's, there's no stretching of anything. It's sensible. Jonathan, question four. Go ahead. Who was at the tomb when they arrived? One or two men or one or two angels? And you'd think this would be a pretty easy one. Uh, so let's take a look. Matthew 28 Verses 2 to 5 and verse 7. I'm just going to take various um, scriptures. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Behold, I have told you. So there's Matthew. What about Mark? Mark says one young man. Mark 16 verse 5. They saw a young man. How about Luke? Luke says two men. Two men suddenly stood near. That's in Luke 24, verse 4. And now in John 20, verse 12, she saw two angels in white. So, Tom and Rick, which is it? One <laughs> or two men or angels? And it's funny because four Gospels give four, use four very, very clearly different descriptions. Okay, Tom, how do you handle the one or two angels or men? Well, again, don't read what's not there because it says that they saw one young man. Doesn't mean there weren't two. <laughs> I think because we have the other uh, Gospels, because Luke says that there were two, but only one did the talking. Right. And a lot of times we'll they'll have two people sitting there, but the talker is the one you describe. I think that's all that's happening here. One angel did the talking, but there were really two. And we're going to get into a, a lovely picture in the John account as to why there were two angels. And the fact that one looked like a young man, well, an angel can take on any form he, you know, he wants. And so I think that was the, the form that, that that particular angel took up there. So that's not really a contradiction. So, and, and, and that's interesting because we see in Scripture many times where angels appear as men, and we know that they are because you, 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 they're identified as such. And so the, 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 the content here is showing us the intensity is that, and you, you read one description, I think, Jonathan, where it said it had dazzling clothing. Uh, yeah, in the Luke account, two men suddenly stood near in dazzling clothing. We're going to expand that further, but it gives you the sense of the of the awe of the moment with the way they were robed, but the sense of 
at least coming down to the reality of appearing as men so you could have a communication. And I think the Gospels, plural, all four of them, are trying to show us this was the most amazing event in all of human history, and there you have these two angels that are coming to these women in the in the appearance of men to make it palatable, to make it understandable, because the trauma cannot even begin to be uh, to begin to be grasped here. So, Tom, as we look at this, then and we say, okay, what's the answer? You're saying, if I've got this right, two angels who took on the likeness of men, and both were dressed in dazzling white. And, and one did the talking, and, and that's one. why a couple of the Gospels say it was one. Okay, and, and, and again, that's an important aspect. Scriptures do that frequently. And, and you know, there's another account that I, I meant to look up, and I didn't. I think it was the account of blind Bartimaeus. When he was healed, when you look at one of the other Gospels, it says it was him. One Gospel says it was him, and another Gospel says there were two. And you look at it, it's the same account. And why does one gospel only focus on the one guy? Because he's the one doing the talking. So that is common in Scripture, focusing on the one giving the message. So simple, straightforward answers to what some people would like to make uh, uh, to be very difficult, what they call contradictions. Harmonizing several different accounts of the same experience can be tricky. Follow the path of the details. Recalling details from a traumatic event is tricky. Where were the angels located and what did they say? Rick and Jonathan have been friends for decades and co-workers on this weekly podcast for just about that same length of time. Since they know each other so well, sometimes Jonathan has to rein Rick in because, let's face it, Rick can start an in-depth analysis at a moment's notice with all those facts stored in his head. So thank you, Jonathan, for keeping Rick in check when you add your comments to help us understand on a non-professor level. And don't shy away to ask Rick and Jonathan a question. They love answering all of them at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. What's next, gentlemen? As we look into this account, it really is important to remind ourselves that the people who had these experiences surrounding Jesus' resurrection were just people. They had just lost their master and friend in a horrible series of experiences. They were all battling deep sorrow and grief. So as we get into the next several questions, we want to use that as a backdrop, just getting a sense of their sorrow and grief. We have a special guest with us today. Tom Ruggirello is going through this, these accounts with us to help us put in order what some have said are dramatic, quote, contradictions of Scripture. And as Tom goes through these with us, the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's showing us how they're not contradictory, but actually incredibly harmonious to paint a wonderful picture of the events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. So, and Rick, I personally um, am very thankful that Tom is here, and I appreciate a studious perspective. And what I'm really thankful for is your gentle and relaxed comments, much different than my little buddy Rick, <laughs> uh, that keeps me on edge uh, during the program. You know, I'm feeling really relaxed, and I'm ready to break out in song and sing Kumbaya. Thank you, Tom, for being here. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. 
have it. <laughs> have to break it up a little bit. See, <laughs> see, see, Tom, that's the effect I have on people. What can I tell yes, you? Yes, very good. <laughs> All right, to our fifth question. Yes, sir. <laughs> Where were the angels situated, inside or outside the tomb, standing or sitting? Sounds simple enough, but is it? Well, in Matthew 28, verse 2, the angel was sitting on a stone outside the tomb. In Mark 16, verse 5, a young man sitting inside on the right. And on Luke 24, 3 through 4, two men standing inside. In John 20, verse 12, the two angels were sitting one on each end of the bed. So, well, it's not so easy. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> okay, so Tom, standing, sitting, inside, outside, how does it all fit together? Again, yes to all of it. They did all of that. <laughs> Again, realize that we're given four accounts so that we can take them as a united testimony. Now, we dealt with the Matthew account and the angel sitting on the stone, and we saw that uh, the, the angel was not sitting on the stone when the women came. That was in order to deal with the guards, get rid of them, get them out of there, get the stone rolled away so the women could go inside. The, all the other accounts, Mark, Luke, and John, all say that the angels were inside the tomb. And so one angel initially is outside. When the women come, they are now inside the tomb. So we can get that. It's simple. You put the accounts together. And one was standing and one was sitting. Well, why couldn't he have been doing both? He was initially standing or initially sitting and then changed position. It's just, I don't think this is a, another one that's a very big deal. Okay. I do think that the John account is significant, though. I don't know if this is a good place to pick this up. But you may not know or the listeners may not know that the John account was written years later after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John had a chance to read the accounts and supplement. And what he does is he tells us very specifically one thing that the other accounts did not tell us. He says that one angel was sitting at the head and one was at the feet of where the body of Jesus was lying. He's doing that, I believe, for a very specific purpose. Whereas the other ones were just giving general information, John says, okay, here's a detail that you're going to appreciate once you understand it. Okay, so I, I got to ask you, what's the very specific purpose then? Because, you know, he's, you're saying that he's bringing this detail of one at the head and one at the foot. Now, the body of Jesus wasn't there, but where he had been laying. Why that very specific detail? Two angels. Here's a, a perfect reason why every Christian should study the Old Testament as well as the New. If you study the ancient tabernacle of Israel, this should pick, bring a picture to mind. Tabernacle building was made up of two rooms, the holy and the most holy. And on one day a year, called the Day of Atonement, which Jews still celebrate to this, this day, Yom Kippur, the blood of the bull was brought into the most holy, and there was something called the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a, a, a wooden box overlaid with gold, and on top of it was uh, what was called the mercy seat. It was a solid piece of gold, and it had two angels formed into it. Yeah, and, and actually, Tom, we had talked about that just a little bit last week in our in our contradiction uh, series. So this is good. You're kind of building on what we talked about. But go oh, ahead. good. Okay. A anyway, these angels are formed out of one piece, and they're looking 
uh, towards the center of this of the ark and they're looking down and when they sacrificed the bull on the day of atonement they would bring the blood into the most holy and they would sprinkle it on the center section of the mercy seat where the angels were looking where the angels are looking and they're sprinkling it it says on and before and if you picture that it could be in the shape of a cross if you interpret that right and so what that did for israel it gave them one year of having their sins covered so that they could have a measure of relationship with god it was called the sin offering it was a day of atonement and if the mercy seat itself is God's justice, where blood would naturally be sprinkled, the two angels have been interpreted to be God's love and his power. And so God's love and power are looking down at the mercy seat, waiting for the blood of atonement to be applied. Okay, so that's the static picture in the Old Testament. Now you bring that mercy seat in your imagination and put it in the tomb where Jesus was. You see the slab and you see two angels. But now these angels are different. They're not made out of gold. They're alive. They're not facing in. They're facing out and they're talking. So what this is saying, I believe, in John's picture here is that the satisfaction of sin has been made by the death of Jesus where his body had laid on that slab and now the angels of power and love can do something they can act because the blood of atonement has been provided I think that's intentional and it's a lovely picture that you would miss if you didn't study the Old Testament and the pictures there and of course along with that the book of Hebrews wow. that to me gives me goosebumps Yeah, that, that, there's a lot there and, and folks Tom is actually going to come back on with us in a couple of months and we're going to do an entire podcast on the tabernacle and all of those things so you can look forward to that but Tom thanks for adding that detail one other detail in this I think that's really also important in, in the market count it talks about a young man sitting at the right. Now, you had obviously one on the on the head and one on the foot at the right and the left and on and on. But again, you were talking about focusing on the one that did the speaking. It's interesting to me that the announcement for Jesus' resurrection is by the angel who's sitting on the right. The announcement for the coming of John the Baptist to Zacharias was from the angel inside the temple speaking to Zacharias, and it says he was on the right side of the altar. You have that place of authority that is the message is coming from God, the right side of God's authority saying he is risen. And, you know, so, folks, instead of getting tied up in in the details saying, well, I don't understand how these fit together, put them together and see how the, 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 the story jumps out because you have the different Gospels. So the answer, the angels were situated they appeared inside the tomb, likely first standing and then sitting where Jesus uh, had been lain. Yes? Yes. And of course, the first angel started outside on the rock, but then appeared to the women inside. So not a contradiction, just a movement of an, a placing of the characters. That's all it is. Don't make it, like you said, don't use a good word, don't you make it a static picture when it's actually a, a movie, a drama unfolding before us. Rick, I think it's important to remember what you said earlier about the overriding principle we will apply to our discussion. That's always seek the larger context beyond any single account. Remember, various perspectives enhance true understanding. You have to have different looks to get the better complete picture. Thank you for that. Okay, Jonathan, question six. All right, let's keep moving. 
Question six, what did the messengers say? And I want to take the time to read the four Gospels. The first is Matthew 28, 5 through 7. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he has said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And now the Mark account, Mark 16, 6 through 7. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee, that you may see him, just as he's told you. And now in Luke 24, 5 to 7. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And the final is in John 20, verse 13. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So not only do they address um, address the messenger, um, I'm sorry, um, not only do you need to address what the messenger said, but you also need to be interested in the concept of the fear here, Rick. In each of these, uh, a word of fear or being amazed or frightened was mentioned, and they're, uniquely enough, all different Greek words. So how do you deal with that also? Okay, so Tom, in the quoting, if you will, of the angels, it says in Matthew, do not be afraid, that's one Greek word. In Mark, it says, do not be amazed, that's a different Greek word. And then in Luke, it says the women were terrified, that's another Greek word. We're quoting the angels, but we're using different words, and there's a lot of emotion here. What's your sense about what the messenger said and the effects? Well, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they said basically three things. Don't be afraid. Jesus is risen. Go tell the disciples. Those are the three things you get from those three accounts. And remember that John is a unique one. It's a different experience. It's when Mary came back. Mary heard both messages. She heard because she was with the women initially, so she heard those three things, and later on she heard a, a special message that was designed just for her. So when, just a quick comment, because, you know, when we quote somebody, you know, you want to quote the words that they used. And Jonathan brought it up in the Matthew account. It says, do not be afraid. Uh, and, and that word literally means to be frightened. Uh, in Mark, it says, do not be amazed. That word means to be astonished utterly. Very, very different word. If you're quoting the angel, you know, give me a sense of uh, where do you get the idea of using different words? Well, we kind of talked about that earlier, right? Here's five women who are telling their account. They probably use different words in each description. All three of those words are correct. They were amazed. They were afraid. They were terrified. In fact, the New International Version of uh, Mark 16.8 says, Trembling and bewildered 
they fled from the tomb. So there's another description of them. So you get the sense of the emotions that's going on here. You can use, you can describe these different emotions in many different ways. All of these words are pertinent. And again, we take the accounts together and realize that there's power in the different diversity of words that we're seeing here. They're not contradicting, they're supplementing. And, and that's a, a very, very important way to look at this. You're, you're supplementing a bigger picture and you're getting the feel from the, the experience of individuals and you're putting those individuals together and saying, wow, this is really big because no two people react exactly the same to the same experience. And that's what we're beginning to be able to see. And the beauty of the, of the, uh, the diversity is wonderful. Because you get a sense of how important and how dramatic this was. So what did the messenger say? You said, don't be afraid. Uh, they, they acknowledged the shock of not finding Jesus' body. And they revealed that he was risen. And they said, go find and tell the disciples. Anything to add, Tom? Well, no. I, I think each of the women would have described it a little bit differently. Um, yeah, those are, those are the three messages he gave them. When he said, don't be afraid, it, that did not allay their fears. Their fears were not allayed to later. So they were still afraid and terrified and amazed. It was uh, the way Jesus dealt with them in the next segment that we'll see that their fears are taken away. Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting. We've, we've done a uh, podcast about angels uh, many times before, and Angels are always saying, don't be afraid, and it never works <laughs> right. because they're so powerful and there's such energy from them. So, But they're trying to be very clear. He is risen. He's not here. Go and tell those who are important. Go ahead, and, and you quick. know, some, sometimes an angel appears and people don't recognize that it's an angel. He appears as a normal person. Other times, and this is one of them, the angel is intentionally looking spectacular. He's dazzling. There's, there's a reason why he wants them to understand that this is a miracle. This is not just an, an angel who looks like another man. This is specifically meant to look like a spirit being. Yeah, and the next segment, we're going to really, really unfold that in a much bigger way. So how do you think you would do in the midst of such trauma, even with the comforting message of an angel? All the women at the tomb were told that Jesus was raised, yet Mary doesn't seem to get it. Why? Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated. This is one of those points that critics love to grab hold of and run with. It proves that the events we are talking about did not go smoothly and without issues. In a sense, the critics are correct. This was not a smooth and seamless experience. However, those critics are wrong about what was happening. So in this segment, what we want to do is unfold the essence of what was happening by the way the scriptures describe it. Because we've talked about this, this fear and this, this sense of, of being completely overwhelmed. This played a huge role in the reactions of these five or more women who were there at the tomb. Uh, and again, folks, with us is uh, Tom Ruggiero to walk through the story of the uh, resurrection of Jesus and, and who witnessed it and how exactly it happened. So, Jonathan, 
No, On question, question seven. Question seven. Here we go. Did the women tell anyone what happened? Yes, in Matthew 28, 8. They ran to report it to his disciples. No, in Mark 16, verse 5 and 8. They said nothing to anyone. Yes, in Luke 24, verse 9. Reported all these things to the 11. And yes, in John 20, 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples. So what's wrong with Mark? <laughs> He's the only one that said no. So how do we explain that one? All right. And, and actually, Jonathan, before we ask Tom to explain it, why don't you actually read Mark 16, verses 5 and 8? Because there's a lot of description in there that we want to uh, sort of build on as we go through this. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed astonished utterly they went out and fled and ran away from the tomb for the trembling quaking with fear and astonishment displacement of their minds had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid okay so you've got that mark account tom that says they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid and yet in the other accounts they went and and talked well we you know we read these words in black and white and they're a story on a page. But try to comprehend the emotion that they were feeling. Trembling and bewildered, they fled, and they resolved not to say anything. Whereas the other account said the reason they were leaving was to tell the apostles. I think both are true. I think they were so disconcerted by what they were seeing, by what they were told, that they were bewildered. Did they believe it or didn't they? I I don't think they believed that Jesus was raised I believe they knew that he was his body was gone and that this dazzling person told them that he was resurrected. They are utterly confused and bewildered. And so they would say, let's not say anything to anyone on the way, but let's tell the apostles what happened. And if you look at what Mary Magdalene did, when she came back, she was looking for his body. She was not looking for a resurrected Lord. Right. So she did not believe that he was resurrected. So I think both can be explained. They're in a mental state that we just can't comprehend unless we've lived through it. You know, and, and I want to I talk about that mental state for a minute. You know, in, in Mark is very, very descriptive. They, they fled with trembling and astonishment. And Jonathan, you added definitions there. Quaking with fear, astonishment, displacement of mind. I, you know, I was telling you guys before the, the podcast started, I had an experience like that, uh, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago. I was driving down my street on my way to my office, and I saw a little toddler all by himself out in his front yard walking toward the street. And I looked, as I drove by, I looked and I thought, that's weird. I looked in my mirror and this little toddler, couldn't have been more than 15 months old, is starting to walk out into the street and there's no adult. And I look and I, my eyes got wide and I pulled my car over and I'm, and I'm, I am, I'm literally trembling because I am so afraid this kid is going to get hit. And I'm trying to get out of my car and I can't. And it occurs to me that I didn't unbuckle my seatbelt. I was, I lost my objectivity because I was so afraid for the child. I finally got out of the seatbelt and I went running back and someone else had seen the same thing and, and they got there just before I did and just picked the kid up and brought him back to his house. But afterwards it was, I, I couldn't act as clearly as I, as I would have liked to because the utter displacement of what happened, it was beyond my belief that how is this little child standing in the road? 
And that's a tiny experience when you think about they go to anoint the body of Jesus, and not only is the tomb been opened up, the body's not there, and these dazzling angels are telling you that he's been raised from the dead? Tom, this is, this is beyond our... You don't know what to do with something like this. Well, there's probably close to the, the sensation of being in shock. Yeah. I think they were shocked. And it, it kind of leads to the, the, what Matthew gives us in Matthew 28.10, uh, that Jesus appeared to these women on the road as they're returning to the apostles. Why did he do that? To allay their fears, to make them understand that he had been resurrected, that what the angels had said was not some crazy thing that they were hallucinating, yeah. but that it was the truth. And the account says that they fell down, they worshipped him, they realized that this was Jesus, and their fear was gone. And it even said that they were fearful and full of joy, kind of a crazy mixed feeling right. that they had. Now the fear is all gone. Now there's just pure joy. Now they return. And I'll mention, too, that Mary Magdalene could not have been there because when she came back to the tomb, she did not believe Jesus had been raised. Had she been with those women on the road, she would have had the same experience, but she missed it. And so I think there's a reason why she wasn't there. And we're going to get to that very shortly. Yes. Yes. Okay, so you've got the astonishment, and you can see, put yourself as a human being in their, their shoes, and you get how difficult it is to grasp. So did the women tell anyone? Yes, they told the ones who they were supposed to tell, but nobody else. And that, I think, Tom, that sums it up with, with all of the emotion behind it. Yeah, we, I, I don't think we can put ourselves in that their place because we know what happened. Yeah. We know that he was raised, but you put yourself in that shocking position of coming to the tomb to anoint him, and all this other experience is so contrary to what you were expecting. It was shock. <laughs> so, and, the, and be, by having the four Gospels, we can better understand the shock. Jonathan, question eight. When Mary returned from the tomb, did she know Jesus had been resurrected? Let's read Matthew 28, 7 through 8. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report this to the disciples. So yes, for Matthew. Now Mark, Mark 16, 10 and 11. She went and reported these to those who had been with him, and they were mourning and weeping. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. So with Mark, it's yes, maybe. <laughs> and, and now Luke, uh, Luke uh, 24, verses uh, 5 and 6, and I'm going to bounce down to 23. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. And he did not find his body they came saying that he also seen had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive so yes for luke and in john 20 verse 2 she ran and came to simon peter and to the other disciples with whom jesus loved and said to them they have taken away the lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him so no for john so i am confused she was there when the <laughs> angels were there Shouldn't she have known? What do you think? Okay, so Tom, we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke all alluding to, yes, she knew. John says she 
she didn't know. Now, obviously, we were talking about the confusion aspect, but go ahead, expand on that here. Well, we're focusing in on Mary Magdalene specifically. Right. So I would say Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, show us that she did not know because John tells us when she came back, she did not know, which tells me that she was not there for the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts. She was not on the road when Jesus appeared to them and confirmed so, to them. So where was she if she wasn't with the rest of the women? Well, we know when she came back, she came back with Peter and John. So she went to look for Peter and John. And I believe, this is some speculation, but I believe she went to a different location than the other women. If you go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember what happened when Jesus was arrested? Yeah. He was taken to the house of the high priest. And who followed yeah, Peter. It was Peter and John, and John yes. right? And where did the other disciples go? They ran away. Where did they go? We don't know. I would speculate they may have gone to Bethany, which is where uh, Mary and Martha lived. And that was a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. So I think the women went to different locations. That would explain why Mary, Peter, and John came first and they came running. If they were two or three miles away, by the time they got to the tomb, they wouldn't be running anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think they, uh, Mary specifically went to find Peter and John somewhere in Jerusalem, while the other women went to find the other disciples somewhere else. And that's why she wasn't with them on the road, because she knew Peter and John weren't in the same place. So she went to where they were. And so I think that explains why she didn't understand that he had been raised when she came back. And, you know, and that's a, a great example of the study of context. We see that the apostles did different things uh, days before and were most likely in completely different locations because it was a very fearful time for them. She knew where, where Peter and John were, and sh that was her task. The other women, however many there were, their task was the rest of the disciples. So you can see that you, you, you divide and conquer. They're going to take care of things, and Mary um, didn't grasp it. It's not like she didn't know. She was told but have you ever been told something that just was just beyond your ability to comprehend? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think that's what we have here. So, 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 Tom, the answer then, perhaps the best way to phrase the answer is, Mary was given the news of his resurrection because she was there when the angels announced it, but was not initially able, able to comprehend it. None of them were. None of the women were. It wasn't until Jesus appeared on the road that they finally grasped it. And then, of course, for Mary later. So, and, and that's the interesting thing, and we're going to get into that in the next segment, is, you know, uh, Jesus does appear to Mary specifically. And you think, well, why Mary specifically? And your answer makes utter, complete sense, because he appeared to the rest of them. He needed to appear to her as well, so they could all be clearly assured there was nothing weird it was God's miracle taking place, just as Jesus had said. It's pretty cool, though, that he would be uh, yeah. so considerate not to expect Mary. Well, the, the other women will tell you <laughs> he treated her special. There was a special thing. And he, we see other instances of that. Uh, just a side note, uh, after Peter denied Jesus, after Jesus' resurrection, he makes specific appearances just to restore Peter. Yes. He saw that Peter was troubled with his guilty conscience, and he went out of his way to restore him. Had he not done that, Peter would not have been an apostle anymore. You know, and, and, and that shows you, that same principle shows you in Mary's case. Remember, Mary was the one who seven demons had been removed from. Jesus had saved her life. 
and she, you're right, she was special to him. And station on honoring him after he was dead, I think, so overrode the 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 uh, the power of the miracle that Jesus very calmly and graciously, and we'll see in the next segment, came to her. And 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 what this is showing us is we're always assured that we're given what we need so our faith can be complete. Yeah, I don't think any of us can appreciate what it means to be uh, demon-possessed, especially by seven demons. So her experience and the change in her life that Jesus accomplished for her uh, planted in her heart such a depth of appreciation and love for him that she would do anything for him. And I think she was a leader of this whole entourage of women. I think it was her idea to come early in the morning. And I think that's why she's mentioned first in each place. I'll tell you, you know, I'm so glad these folks decided these things contradict themselves because then we get to talk about it. It's really amazing, (laughs) the beauty that we get to see. It is really amazing to see the depth of caring by Jesus for Mary in the middle of the world's greatest miracle. Yeah. With all these powerful and life-changing events unfolding, what details are left to be put in order? Talk to us during our live Monday night podcast from 8 to 9.30 every week. If you're listening through our app, just hit the message button. If you're on ChristianQuestions.com, click on chat at the bottom of your screen. As our discussion continues, it is inevitable when we start to answer questions that more questions appear. Let's see how this expands. Now that we've navigated through many of the challenges to the integrity of this wonderful biblical account, we can begin to wrap it up with the last few details. It's important to always remember the fundamentals of reporting from various perspectives. People see differently, they recall differently, and so we can get their sense of it because this was a very personal experience. And again, folks, uh, with us is Tom Ruggiero to walk us through the narrative of the resurrection of Jesus and the many scriptures that seem to contradict each other actually enhance each other in the telling of this wonderful, wonderful account, this world-changing account of the resurrection of Jesus. So, Jonathan, what's next? Number nine, when did Mary first see Jesus? Now, we're going to look at Matthew 28, 8 through 9, just various verses. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And Tom, as you were mentioning before, Mary was not in that initial group. So it's really not described there from your perspective. Is that correct? That's correct, right? She went to somewhere else where Peter and John were. Okay. And now I think John is very interesting. I'm sorry, Mark. Mark 16, 9 through 10 After he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. Now, that's a confirmation. (laughs) That is beautiful. Now, nothing is um, written in Luke uh, on this, but let's take a look at John 20, verse 2, and then we'll also jump down to verse 14. So she ran and came to Simon and Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So, Rick and Tom, when does Mary see him? Okay, so so Tom, we had already talked about the Matthew account saying that Mary's not there. 
there's something interesting about the Mark account that needs to just kind of be put in order that's a little bit different uh, in, in terms of just scriptural understanding. Why don't we go into that before you comment on the three accounts together? Okay, um, I think we have to understand where we got the Bible from. The, the New Testament writers, we do not have the original paper, papyra, or whatever they wrote on. We do not have the originals. All we have are copies. And they're called manuscripts. The oldest manuscripts we have date to the third century. So a couple hundred years after they were actually written. And the way they were passed down, obviously they didn't have printing presses like we do. They had to be hand copied. Letter by letter, page by page, it was a gruesome job, difficult. And so a lot of the original manu- all the original manuscripts have been lost. But what the miracle of this is that the, we have enough evidence to preserve the original writings back to the third century. The oldest manuscript we have is called the Sinaitic Manuscript. It was found in the Sinai at, at uh, St. Catherine's Monastery. And it's from the third century. The Sinaitic manuscript does not contain Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to the end of the chapter. It's not in the oldest manuscript. And so uh, biblical experts say that it was added later. And what they think what ha- that happened is that a copyist who read the other accounts assumed that Mary Magdalene was the first one to see him, so he added that. He added some other things he thought were right. But you can actually scratch that out of your Bible because it was not in the original writings. I don't think Mary Magdalene was the first. I think she was the fifth, based on our reasoning that the women on the road were the first. There were at least four of those women. And then Mary Magdalene, according to the John account, saw Jesus on her second visit to the tomb when he appeared to her. But if anyone wants to look that up, it's actually been translated. You can go to codexsinaticus.org slash en. That will give you an English translation of the oldest manuscript of the, of the Bible that is in existence today. Okay, so, you know, there's a, a manuscript issue, and that's part of understanding Bible, quote, contradictions and Bible harmony. And so when something doesn't belong, we need to call it out, if you will. And when something does, we need to put it where it, where it belongs, in the harmony. So what you're saying is the Mark account is really an, something added afterwards. So you have said that her first seeing of Jesus came after she came back to the tomb with Peter and John. She didn't see yes. him before that. Okay. Yes, that's correct. Because she was not in the group with the other women on the road to go visit with the other disciples. That's correct, because if she was, she would have already known he was resurrected. Right. But from the John account, she clearly did not. Okay. All right. Simple question, actually. Very, very simple question. So, Jonathan, can you believe it? You and I, we made it to 10 questions. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it is. So what's the 10th? All right. Here it is. Last one. Could Jesus be touched after the resurrection? So this is talking a physical touch. Yes. And in Matthew 28, verse 9, it says, yes. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Now, in John 20, verse 17, it's no. And the King James Version says, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But interesting enough, another Citation in John says yes, and that's in John 20, verse 27. Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. That is obviously saying yes. So now there's nothing in Luke or in Mark. Um, so 
the question, can Jesus literally be touched after his resurrection? So, so Tom, as we get into this one, and honestly, this is, this is a nitpick. Uh, I think this is the biggest nitpick of the whole group. Okay, I really do, because it's like, oh, come on, you know, let, let's, be, let's get clear. But because it was brought up by those who are critics, we wanted to address it. And several of these, these contradictions, the 10 that we talked about, were brought up. And we wanted to put it on the table and say, look, there's a harmony. So the simple question, could Jesus physically, was it okay to physically touch Jesus after the resurrection? Yes, no, or maybe? Clearly, yes. In fact, the John account that they're claiming is a contradiction. She's clinging to him. Yeah. <laughs> she's holding on to him. So yeah. it was possible. It was allowable. But what he is saying is, I've given you a job. This is important. Go do it. Don't spend time here. There's a lot of things that have to be done. And this is your mission. Go, go run. Go do it. Okay. So he's not saying, you can't physically touch me. It's against the rules. He's saying, no time for this. That's right. Okay, so it's a simple, there is no time for this. You've got something much bigger to do. Others need to know what you just found out. You know, understanding Mary's attachment to Jesus, she would have sat there for hours (laughs) had she been allowed to because of this traumatic uh, infusion of blessing that her dead Lord was alive and he's standing right there. So he had to kind of break it up and say, you've got, you've got a job to do. Okay. Okay. So, so then the answer to, to wrap up this answer, Jesus certainly could be touched and embraced, but he would not be delayed, nor should they be delayed in the accomplishing all that the father had for him to do in those next 40 days. There was a yeah, lot. In fact, in fact the new American standard says, stop clinging to me. Right. Is a, is a better translation. So of course he could be touched. But it was not about the touching, it was about the delay. It was about the, the urgency of the message. Okay, so those are the ten questions that the critics put together and said, you see how much this, this account contradicts itself. And having gone through them all, we can see that it doesn't. So Tom, let's begin to sum this up, and if you would, put these in order Put the whole story in order as you see it unfolding. I may add a thing or two here or there, so I may interrupt you. Sure, sure, no problem. Yeah, and again, I have a little speculation in here based on where Mary uh, may have gone. But putting the accounts together, because I think that's the way they're intended to be treated, not using them as contradictory events, but complementary events. We see that an angel uh, descends from heaven. He rolls away the stone. There's a great earthquake, and the Roman guards are terrified. They faint. They finally get up. They run to tell the chief priests what they had witnessed. That's from Matthew 28, 11. And from the account, as we look, particularly from the Luke account, we see there were at least five women, including Mary Magdalene, probably led by Mary Magdalene, who initially came to Jesus' tomb in order to anoint what they thought was his dead body. When they arrived, the stone had been rolled away, and so they enter the tomb, and an angel invites them to see the place where Jesus had laid. They were terrified. They had never seen anything like this before. This was out of the ordinary. They were shocked by what they saw. They flee, and they determine that they're not going to say anything to anyone because this is just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so they separate. Mary runs to find Peter and John 
I'm speculating, somewhere near Jerusalem. Uh, and her message to them was, someone has taken the body of Jesus. We have to find it. And then the other women, they seek out the other remaining apostles wherever they had gone. I had speculated that it might have been to Bethany. On their way, the four women are met by Jesus. They recognize him. He talks to them. He gives them account, uh, a job to do. They fall down. They worship at his feet. So they clearly now understood that he was alive. These were the four women. And then Mary Magdalene, she comes back to the tomb with Peter and John, still not understanding that Jesus had been raised. And then she finally encounters Jesus, who she thought was the gardener. He, re he says her name in some tender way that only she could grasp, and she understood that this was Jesus. So he made a special appearance just for her. So you've taken all of the pieces of this, this account and put them together, and it's a very harmonious, flowing, beautiful, inspirational story that gives us the greatest hope mankind has ever received in the context of of a great injustice, the crucifixion of Jesus, a great sorrow and grief, the death and burial of Jesus, and a great uh, uh, inability to comprehend the massiveness of the joy. So that's what the story looks like. So folks, when, when you hear the, the, the critics say, well, it doesn't make sense, they the, 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 the different gospels contradict each other, please, Take your time. Go through them. See the harmony. See how it all fits together. Tom, any final comments? We're about to wrap up. Well, one of the things that impressed me the most about this was that, uh, first of all, the care of the women, that the apostles didn't think of bringing uh, spices to anoint the body of Jesus, but the women did. And the women were so devoted to Jesus that he made a special effort to have them be the first witnesses of his resurrection. And to me, it tells me that anyone who serves the Lord, no matter how lowly they think their service is, the Lord recognizes that and he consequently blesses that. So none of us should ever think that when we do something for the Lord, no matter how little it is, that he doesn't see it and appreciate it. These women were specially blessed by the Lord spending time and appearing to them and comforting them and giving them this awesome memory and privilege that they could share with their families and treasure for the rest of their lives. So to me, the personal appearance to these women is, is, means quite a bit. Okay, Tom, thank you so much, so much for being with us and, and opening this story up in a way that only you can do. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Appreciate My pleasure. It. Folks, listen, you know, this is such an important thing. Let's, let's decide to look at the scriptures in the way they were written, to, to hear the story that they are there to tell us, because it's all about the salvation of humankind through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when we look at this account of his resurrection, it is utterly inspiring and draws us to this sense of awe that God is God, and his son gave his life so we could have life and the world could have life. What in life could be better than that? Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Whatever your favorite podcast channel is, please rate us, review us. We'd greatly, greatly appreciate it. And coming up next week, 
next part in our mini-series on Bible uh, Proposed Contradictions, Contradictions Part 4, Why So Many Contradictions uh, About the Book of Genesis. Talk to you then. <laughs> 